Greetings. My name is Blake Schmida, alongside Nicolette Rojo, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship, service above self, and commitment to country in a time of great national need. Welcome back to the American Valor Podcast, folks. I'm your host, Blake Schmida, alongside Nicolette Rojo, my co-host here. And we are joined today by a very special and powerful guest here in Tara Fields. Tara, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Greetings from Kansas. Absolutely. Love to hear another Kansan here in the American Valor Podcast. Um, and we are excited to have you aboard um, Tara, without further ado, I, I would just love for you to tell us a bit about yourself, you know, including your service and your path to becoming an author, um, and a bit about your new book, Tracer Patient. Absolutely. So um, I was in the Army for almost 12 years. I was commissioned uh, the whole time. My first uh, six years, I was a uh, transportation officer, and uh, I got an opportunity to apply for the Army Social Work Program, um, and so I did so. Uh, anyway, I transitioned to the Medical Service Corps um, and then got the opportunity then to go through the Army Social Work Program. Um, and then after the Army Social Work Program, you have two years to get your clinical license. And so then you're a full-fledged clinician. Um, so I did that my my two years of, um, it's an internship program that you're doing with the Army. I did that at Fort Hood. And then um, I transitioned, uh, actually, while I was active duty, I actually got passed over for promotion because of the volunteer um, that I did for the social work program. I actually had to voluntarily give up the rank of captain to go be a lieutenant. And I think somehow in the board process, they thought I did something wrong, I guess. So um, anyway, was passed over for promotion and ended up in the guard. Um, and so I was active duty for eight years, and then I transitioned to um, the National Guard for the end of the social work program. And then into, um, at, when I finished the program, I actually transferred from the Texas Guard, who was really just funding the rest of the program, to then going to uh, the Virginia National Guard, did two and a half years in the Virginia National Guard, and then transitioned to the Kansas National Guard. Um, and I'm actually a Kansan through and through from Kansas, born and raised. Um, actually, my dad was in the Army as well. I swore I never would join the army, but I did. Um, and I loved just about every moment of it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, as we get into talking about the book, um, I don't hate the army. I don't dislike my military service. Um, and unfortunately I talked to far too many veterans today that, um, that really don't speak kindly to their military service and are somewhat ashamed of their military service. And I find that just so disheartening. But we'll get into talk some of that. But um, so that's how I got into the the social work program. Um, became a clinician uh, initially while you know being a transportation corps officer. What gravitated me towards the social work program is that I recognized very early on is that the there we didn't have enough clinicians um, and clinicians that really understood military service. 
um, doing the work and we and uh, our, my brothers and sisters need quality clinicians. And so for me, taking the voluntary rank reduction was just part of it. Um, I told my uh, battalion commander that ultimately signed the packet for the social work program. He said, you're doing this at a really unique time. You're, we're getting ready to go through a drawdown in troops. Um, and he was concerned about the longevity of my career if I took this. And I said, sir, this is exactly what I want to do. I've done my homework. So he signed the packet. And lo and behold, he's now a, a general officer. And uh, he hasn't told me I told you so. Colonel Lambert hasn't said this uh, just yet. But uh, he, you know, he definitely forecasted the fact that I would not get promoted um, and then was passed over for promotion. So they've created this awesome program, but then, uh, you know, the systems around um, whether, you know, transitioning to from different branches, whatever it is, we don't have the infrastructure set up for success. And so then you have these providers that were bleeding in times where, you know, here, here we are um, 10 years within the last 10 years, we've lost 60,000 soldiers, service members, Okay, veterans to suicide. We lost more in to suicide than we have in, than we did in the Vietnam War. Okay, so you know, and then on average over the last eight years, we've lost five hundred actively serving members to suicide. And so then to also hear, and I, I talk about myself and also another clinician that I know personally in the book um, that we're bleeding these clinicians because we don't have robust systems to support. Uh, the work that we're doing. And so the talent mismanagement is just yet one another, one other piece to how we're losing soldiers, you know, um, why we don't have enough providers to see the patients that we've got. So, uh, but, uh, so I did four, four years total in the, in the national guard. And I also recognize that the national guard, um, and the part-time force that it is actually has a very unique, uh, mission. And I, I, personally, I think is harder, um, harder in many ways in the National Guard, asking these troops to do something part-time. And certainly as a clinician, trying to do, trying to do this work full-time is hard enough, but then as a clinician being asked to, to come in and support troops two to three days out of the month and two weeks in the summer, um, is, is obviously a recipe for disaster. And so, um, August, let's see, August 16th of, uh, 2018, I became the patient. Um, I was, I was serving in the Kansas national guard at the time, and we had a cluster of six suicides in six months at this point was three and three weeks. And, uh, many people have asked me, is the work too hard? It wasn't, it had nothing to do with the patient care, it had absolutely nothing to do with the patient care. My hospitalization, um, and that, that I talk about also in the book is a means to destigmatize mental health. If you have a brain in your head, we all have mental health problems. Get over it. Um, and I actually have that line in the book. Um, but whether you're a clinician or you're a grunt or you're a, you know, a mechanic, it doesn't matter um, what your job is, whether you're male, female, black, white, officer, enlisted, um, or, or civilian. You have a brain in your head. We all have mental health problems. The thing that I find um, troubling about our military is we know the military is a pressure cooker. And so we have to be able to provide skills and tools for our members coming in to be successful. Um, if we're recruiting members to come into our military from inner cities or broken homes or high incidence of trauma, childhood trauma, um, 
we know next to nothing about who we're bringing into our military. We need, we need robust training and treatment at the beginning. And it's not that, Hey, you have a high adverse childhood experience score, um, which is one of the assessments that I do for all of my patients. Um, but if, if you have high incidence of childhood trauma and you have PTSD, I'm not saying, no, you can't come into the military, but they need a different sort of basic training. Okay. People with pre-existing trauma coming into the military are going to do great actually when the bullets are flying because bullets have been flying their whole lives, so to speak. Okay. The people that struggle, okay. The people that had PTSD before they come in, they struggle with being stateside because things are calm and they don't know how to do that. Then there's paranoia. They're looking over their shoulder. They're waiting for the next shoe to drop. So, you know, part of the, the, many things that I approach in the book are how to bring different training to our military and um, address the systemic um, ways in which we promote, in which we bring um, soldiers into our military system, um, recognizing what what they're coming in with. Instead, we have recruiters that'll say things like, uh, and I know this is fraudulent and I know this is taboo, but they'll say, hey, let's just not disclose this here because there's a lot of pressure to bring uh, to have a certain quota for these recruiters. Talk to those individuals, too, in my book. Um, but the recruiting side and soldiers that have been told, uh, no, uh, just don't disclose that. They go off to basic training. Now they're off their medication. So now you're sending a kid into the, the military, into the pressure cooker off of his meds. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, so through these vignettes that I disclose in the book, um, I go into the systemic, um, culture that is resonating right now around suicide. And I, I really look at both the, the individual and the systemic changes that must happen. Um, and then the whole second part of the book, um, I go into uh, the policy changes that must happen. Um, and, um, I've, I've identified um, those throughout the book. But in the heart of the book, I have two service members that I actually really go into depth about their deaths and um, how how they died. Um, for one gentleman, his name was Brandon Caserta. He was in the U.S. Navy. Um, he, uh, he had aspired to go to SEAL training. He did go to SEAL training um, despite his dad, who was a retired E-9 um, in, the, in the Navy as well, trying to talk him out of it. But Brandon and a buddy from high school opted to go uh, and they applied and, and was able to go to SEAL training. But Brandon was running on a broken leg, broken tibia um, to be exact, and had pneumonia in sight for over a week before somebody rang the bell for him. And uh, he he assured everybody that he wasn't the wrong one that rung the bell, um, but they took him to medical. They made him reclass. Um, and so he gets sent out to Norfolk, Virginia. Um, to perhaps one of the most toxic um, command structures I've ever heard about. But for two years, there was an E5 that berated him just about every day, calling him a bud stud. Um, if he could, you couldn't make it, you know, yada, yada, yada. But this was coming from a kid that had always played in the peewee leagues. Okay. He, Brandon Caserta, you know, aspired to be on the major league baseball team of um, the majors of, of the Navy. And you know, for an E5 that probably never even had a thought of uh, even attempting that to braid him and harass him for two years. Um, finally, 
And after multiple attempts, he tried to get out of the command um, that E5 had deployed and Brandon was trying to um, somehow finagle getting out of that command and leadership structure unsuccessfully. And um, on, on June 24th of um, 2018, Brandon Caserta, after a week um, beforehand, had wrote seven suicide notes. On the 24th, he ultimately jumped into the rear rotor of a helicopter, not once, but twice. The first one blew him back. I actually talked to the E6 that witnessed, the female E6 that witnessed that event. Um, but I transcribed his suicide notes in the book um, for the reader to really understand what was going through that kid's mind and, and the environment that he found himself in. And I, I me and the, the Caserta's have often talked, we, uh, we talked pretty often actually. And we, we talk about how that kid didn't die from suicide. That kid died. Um, the, the parents call it murder. Um, I call it toxic leadership. Okay. He died from, as a result of toxic leadership. So, um, the other kid that I highlight was uh, actually the only person that I've ever treated. Um, and I, I actually didn't even get to treat him. He was in the Kansas national guard. Um, and, uh, this kid, he was, he had gotten himself into, um, a, a pretty heavy drug addiction and self-disclosed to his, his leadership that he had a drug problem. He went to drug rehab, which he had to pay for out of pocket, uh, because he no longer had healthcare insurance, which is another systemic thing that I go through, um, in the book, um, unique to the national guard and reserves that these, these members have to pay into their insurance plan. But for, in that case, uh, Brandon was an E4. Um, it's about 48, it is $48 a month for a single soldier to carry healthcare insurance with TRICARE. But for a kid such as he, um, $350 to $400 a drill weekend, um, you're asking that kid to eat or pay for his healthcare insurance. And so that's just yet another barrier um, within the National Guard structure. But um, I, I, go into depth on uh, Zachary Schaefer's story um, very much so in the book. The parents um, have given me full authorization. Um, HIPAA precludes me from writing about any of my patients for 50 years post-mortem um, without the permission of the parents. And the parents have asked me, actually, they wanted this information out. Um, they want this to bring change so that other parents aren't dealing um, with the things that Gold Star families have to deal with after these events. So that's a little bit about my book. That is, oh, wow. That is just a lot. And especially with this, clearly there's plenty of, of systemic issues within military and government that could go on for, honestly, months in terms of talk. But so to dive in quickly to your book. So Tracer Patient, how did you come up with that title? And why did and a second follow-up to that is you kind of touched upon it a little bit but why did you what is i don't want to say inspire but what intrigued you to write the story not just write the tracer patient but to format it the way you did including the the stories including the stories of the two young men and others other elements of the book and the structure structure the way you formatted it Nicolette, that is a great question. Okay, so we'll start with the the name tracer patient. So what um what happens in DOD hospitals, but all hospitals? So Joint Commission is one of many organizations that do um, come into um, accredited 
to do accreditation for hospitals. Um, and so they do investigations. And so joint commission happens to do military hospitals. Um, and so joint commission, what they do is they assign tracer patients. So what a tracer patient is, is kind of a notional or go shopper, if you will, or undercover boss, if you will, um, that they assign at the door and they say, okay, hey, Tara, they pull you aside and they say, hey, Tara, you're going to present to Irwin Army Hospital or whatever, Madigan Hospital, or whatever hospital. Um, and they they say, okay, you're going to be uh, the tracer, one of the tracers. And so you're going to present with these symptoms. Maybe you got chest pain, whatever it is. Okay. And so, you know, um, and Joint Commission knows that you're a fake patient, um, but you're, you're going to circle, you're, you're going to go into that hospital setting and you're going to present just like any other patient with whatever symptoms. And then your job as the tracer is to kind of poke around You're you're assessing how you're treated, is the equipment calibrated, is everybody that touches you credentialed appropriately. It is a highly, highly um, tedious, it's very tedious of a process. And they're there usually for two weeks, joint commission. Um, but the problem with joint commission and their uh, what they do with the military is the military knows within like a month, three, two to three weeks um, of when they're coming. And so as you can imagine, right, like if we know mom's coming in to inspect our room, okay, like we're going to get everything tidy and then, okay, we're going to go back to, we're going to go back to the ways that we were doing. Okay. And so, um, it, it just is not, it's not ethical, uh, but this is what we do. I've been in many hospitals. I've actually been, um, part of two different, um, you know, uh, iterations that joint commission was coming in and that's exactly what happens. And so, um, and then we go back to the same faulty ways. But after a couple of weeks, you're the tracer, you're coming back and you're you're providing this to the investigation team um, so that we can highlight areas of negligence before somebody dies in those areas. So that's where the tracer patient comes from. And then um, I also kind of talk about this a little bit in the book on the battlefield or, you know, we go out to the military ranges for, you know, to shoot our and do our qualifications. We shoot illumination rounds or tracer rounds to illuminate where we need to go. And so that's where tracer patient, that's where the title kind of came from. And so the second part to your question about the format, um, as a clinician, I, um, in, in many different edits and the editor that I had, many different editors, I finally came up with how to approach it based on being a clinician um, and wanted to approach it in a way like I do with many of my patients. If you don't have a rapport built, with um, who you're sitting with, you're never going to dive um, and get to the root of the issues at hand. And so um, by self-disclosing, uh, probably, well, is the most vulnerable day of my life, um, uh, one of which causes me a lot of shame. Uh, it had um, at some point in my life caused me a lot of shame um, to know that I resorted to what I did that night. And I, I can go into that here shortly. Um, but um if I can't be vulnerable, whether I'm a clinician or I'm a lawyer or I'm a doctor, okay, if, if you don't self-disclose and people then realize like, okay, if, if she's willing to, to disclose her hardest moments, she's not here to judge me. And so as a clinician, that is a very powerful tool um, to utilize. And so I thought, you know, that's exactly where I was going to wait until kind of build up and then offer, you know, the, the title of the chapter is the night I lost my shit for all the right reasons where I disclosed, you know, the moment where I just, I, I lost my head. 
I, I just felt like I couldn't take anymore. And uh, it was a very impulsive act, something I'd never done before. I, I, th it, there's just moments still today that I can't even believe I got to that point that I let myself get to that point. But, um, nonetheless, I knew that the reader needed to hear that because people struggle in ways that you can't always see. Okay. Um, that is not, is not seen to the naked eye. And so when, when somebody can go into their most vulnerable time and share that with the reader, um, my hope is that it aims to destigmatize mental health. Okay. I don't care who you are. If you have a brain in your head, we all have mental health problems and it's time to get over that. Okay. We've got to get beyond this in medicine and realize that, gosh, darn, if we can't talk about these things that are bothering us from the head up psychologically, okay, we're never, we're never going to survive as a people. So, um, but yeah, the, the, the format, I just approached it from that standpoint to upfront, you know, build that rapport. Like I do with patients, build that rapport up front with kind of doing that self-disclosure. And then I start going into the, the crux of the problem, highlight, you know, suicides that have been happening in our military, provide numbers. Um, and then, you know, I, I start approaching um, systemic issues um, that are happening, not just at one or two hospitals, not just in Kansas, uh, but this is happening everywhere. Okay. It's happening inside the military and outside the military. Okay. I just happened to have um, the, the, the bulk of my experience come from the military um, and you know, um, not only was I an officer for 12 years, nearly 12 years, um, I'm also a military spouse. My husband and I met at officer school. Um, we've been married 15 years. So I'm a military spouse. I was a military brat. So I have that perspective. Um, I've been a clinician um, in military hospitals in uniform. I've been a DA civilian. I've also been a contracted social worker working for the Air Force with the Navy for a short amount of time. So I have all this experience and I thought I have to capture this like because I, I've seen it from so many vantage points. I've been a commander. I've been a leader. Uh, um, I'm a woman. Um, all these different hats that I wear and perspectives that I think is really important to capture um, because there's all these barriers. There's all these barriers that exist. And if we don't start carting uh, and tucking away at some of these we're never going to get better. In fact, what's going to happen is we're going to, we're going to see suicide rates reach top 50, 50 a day. Okay. So, um, yeah, we, we've got to, we've got to get better. And, uh, this is my stab at it. And then I took the uniform off to do what I'm doing because I would not have been able to publish this book being in that uniform. So. Yeah. And, and I want to pivot and talk about a little bit different kind of challenge, maybe a little more personal to you as uh, somebody who stepped away from the service to, you know, aspirationally um, look to change the system, you know, that comes with blowback. And what are some of the challenges that you have faced writing this book as, as you say, as a whistleblower? Well, um, to today, I really haven't had many, but I say that um, I'm actually quite shocked. It, the book has been out um, almost two, well, right at two months. Actually, yesterday was two months. Um, um, and honestly, I, in my mind, um, I thought I'm not going to survive. Like I, I actually early on um, in writing and actually stepping away from the guard, I actually had a death threat um, that was brought to me by another member of, um, you know, the, the, the unit. Um, 
And I, I just, I can't focus on those things. I actually have a patient that I once served with um, while I was at Fort Riley, actually. Um, anyway, I see him now as a patient. And this individual, it, it, to my knowledge, is the only person that has read my book from cover to cover. And he, he told me last week, he said, uh, Tara, you scare me. I said, what do you mean I scare you? Um, um, and he said, well, 1% of our population serves in the military. I said, okay. And he said, and 1% writes a book. And I was like, okay, but you still haven't like shared with me why I scare you. And he said, yeah, so you represent the 0.0001%. I just kind of chuckled. I said, but you still haven't shared with me why I scare you. And he said, Tara, you know the fear, okay? It sucks. It absolutely sucks being the whistleblower. I have no home. Um, I'm seen as the problem. I'm seen as, you know, the attention seeker. I'm seen as all these things. I've been called all horrible things, okay? I have no home. This, if people think I'm out to make millions in writing a book, I mean, I've given away way more books than I'll probably ever sell. Okay. I'm not here to sell books. I'm here to make sure that we don't continue stepping over the, these landmines that keep resulting in death, you know, death, death of epic proportions. Okay. I'm sick and tired of stepping over our dead bodies of our sons and daughters that are raising their right hands, thinking that they're going to go into the military and serve and, and, and have the heart of servants that come into the military thinking that they're going to be cared for, but we don't even have the basic systems or the, the, the amounts of providers that we need to see that we need to have. So there's all these barriers. And so like I, and I love our military, we need our military. And when I say what I'm about to say, I'm going to prepare my listener. It's not that I hate the military. I love our military. I would serve it again, 10 times over. Um, and we need people to serve our military because I don't think we really want to bring back the draft. Okay. But when I say that to say this, if we don't fix our ways, okay, we will be, we're going to be losing people at higher rates. And we're, we're already the weakest we've ever been as a, as a military. And, you know, we're getting weaker because we're bleeding our we're bleeding good people, both the suicide and people are just saying, good people are saying, I got to get out. I can't do this anymore. Okay. And I'm, I'm an example of that. I had to leave not because I'm a quitter. Okay. I left to go get help. And in fact, that is the cover of my book. I don't know um, if you guys have seen it, but the cover of my book, I actually um, took my uh, military gear up to the Capitol lawn in Kansas, uh, Kansas capitals in Topeka. Um, and I had name tapes made for the uniform that say uh, Captain Whistleblower. And then instead of U.S. Army, it says Mafia, a lawless organization. Okay, when we don't have policies and we're making up policy as we go and the rules don't apply to certain individuals and there's no accountability for a lot of people at the top, that puts people on unsteady ground. That's called the Mafia. Okay, they recruited me and many other people like me to come in and, and support and defend our, our, our nation against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to follow U.S. Army policy, that's what I raise my right hand to come in and serve. But when we're nowhere close to following the policies that we have, um, we're creating a mafia. You want to go recruit mafia? You need to declare that at the door, and you need to go find some someone else. But if you, you're recruiting people by coming in and, and, and supporting military and, and following U.S. policy, we're not even doing that. Okay, so go play those mafia games somewhere else. That's not why I came in. So I took the uniform off to do that. Um, so 
I anticipate, uh, to answer your question, I anticipate more of a, a blowback. I'm surprised I haven't had much of it. Um, but I'm also really uniquely trying to um, engage leaders, um, particularly, like I said, my husband's still on active duty um, and stationed right here uh, in the heart of America at Fort Riley. Um, and I've really tried to start engaging the leadership. I'm not trying to make anybody look bad. I'm not trying to make Irwin Army Hospital look bad or, uh, you know, Fort Riley look bad. Heck, this is happening everywhere. But if we can't start looking at ourselves, okay, and stop worrying about how we look, okay, we got our pants at our ankles. Okay, we've got body bags stacking up for days. And, and we need to get away from this idea that we, we look bad. Okay, we look bad and we smell bad. I mean, bodies are decomposing and it stinks. And so Tara Fields is pulling up this rug saying, we've got to clean ourselves up. I'm not here to make us look bad. In fact, that's where the shamed out guilt resides for all these veterans that are committing suicide. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess this has been fantastic work so far. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, now that you've been able to expose some of these things and I know you know, your work of tracer patient is, is leading you to a lot more places and, and spaces like this where you can tell that story. But, um, you know, I'm curious now that you've been able to expose some of those flaws in paying forward care to our nation service members, you know, what are some of your goals as, as a writer, as a therapist, as a social worker, as a human being, you know, going forward, um, to spin off of this work? Yeah. Uh, I, uh, Going through the master's program, we had several policy classes and I just, I, uh, I hated policy, but as I got in and started doing the work, everything, and I, I recognize that everything that we're doing is rooted in policy. And so, you know, where I go from here is, um, you know, I, I love, I was actually telling a patient today, like, I love treatment. I love diving with patients and getting to the root of, you know, what, what's making them tick, what's frustrating them, what's hurting them. Um, what's keeping them up at night, but, um, and I, I love that work and I'll continue to do that work in part, but I know I have to go to the policy level. Um, and so that's as part of this project, I'm actually getting ready to send a copy. So 585 copies, um, to every Senator, governor and sitting house of representatives member. Um, so that, you know, this is a, a, a uncharted territory. I mean, um, to be honest, I'm scared shitless. Um, but I also know, you know, I told you about that patient that told me I, that I scare him. Um, I, I know that fear, okay. I can't focus on, oh my gosh, what, it, what's going to happen? What's the blowback? Look around what's going on in our nation. Look around yourself. Fear keeps us quiet. Fear debilitates us. Fear has allowed what's going on in this nation to continue. Every one of us have to stand up. Every one of us have to start speaking up. Um, and, and, and rising and, and speaking against this stuff, because if we don't and taking action, we don't, this is going to be the demise of our country. Um, there's a chapter in the book that I actually warn our federal government, um, you know, like I'm speaking the things that we all recognize, <laughs> we all see, just got to turn around the six o'clock news, um, but fear debilitates us. Okay. We're worried about our evaluations. We're worried about, you know, our licensure. We're worried about all these things, but in that fear, we're actually creating more liability and culpability. So I'm trying to be a model. Okay. For others to follow that, you know what, like we don't have to live in that fear. 
And in fact, when we can free ourselves from that fear, like the possibilities are endless. Totally. Absolutely agree. Especially with 2024 coming up and election season across our nation, local, federal, etc. I guess really going into it is, this is an overall broad view. What impact are you hoping that not only sending a copy to all of our governors, senators, congressmen, women will have, but just the book overall to our society? I guess really is what impact are you hoping, A, to our government, of course, and B, just overall within society? I think the first place we have to acknowledge we have a problem. And I think that's the biggest problem that our government has. Again, goes back to liability and culpability. Okay. When we can now expose the harsh truth, okay, it's out there. It's out there. We can't hide from it anymore. And now it's time to, like I tell my patients when they come in, here's a, a roll of Ronnie paper towels and some cleanup solution. I'm going to help you. Well, let's clean this up together. Okay, you got yourself here. We got yourself here with families, things that going on. There's some individual things that you're contributing to. Okay, but now as a collective, we can start cleaning ourselves up. So individuals, each is, okay, can start cleaning up some things and identifying some shortcomings. But then systems can change when we're okay, when it's okay to do this and acknowledge that we have a problem. We I can't even get some leaders. I um before I left the, the Kansas National Guard, I had a, a meeting with the two-star general. I couldn't even get them to acknowledge that we have a problem. And I told them that and there lies the problem. You can't change anything if you're not acknowledging that it's first a problem. Okay, so by sending this to 585 members of our federal government, okay, one, it exposes the harsh truth. It, I, don't, I don't even think those policy writers get, get this information. Okay, it's all just funneled out um, so we don't look bad. Okay. So I think this is going to be alarming to a lot of people. I mean, I've talked to uh, people that have never served in the military and they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize suicides was that bad of a problem in our military. Um, uh, we think it looks like we're right on par with the national average because we hear 22 a day. That's just an example. Okay. Uh, in my book, I, I project it probably up word of about 40 a day. Okay. But if we projected those numbers, we wouldn't be able to recruit. Okay. It's hard enough right now recruiting. 30% of our nation, just based on medical standards, can even come into the military. Okay, so we either got to address policy to decrease the standards, or here's a, here's a good idea. Why are we sending soldiers out for minuscule stuff when we really need to soldier and mentor and, 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 and provide training for them to be better soldiers? But we live in a society right now that wants everything right now oh, that kid didn't adapt or da, 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 da. Well, let's start addressing some of the stuff that he's he's faced with. Let's give him treatment without count having bean counters, I call them in the hospital saying, oh, that soldier has been seen 12 times and now we need to file um, paperwork on his chapter or med board. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we're bleeding these soldiers because we, we're in this immediacy. We need it right now. And we're not willing to, to soldier and, and train. Okay, and I blame that war, the 22 year war that we've been in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Okay, we are tired as a force. Okay, so if, if the policy writers at the top don't hear and see and, and recognize these, these vignettes um, and this anecdotal evidence, we can make spreadsheets look pretty all day. Okay, and, and that's, what they, that's what they write policy on. But it's time we start listening to this anecdotal evidence 
and say, oh my gosh, I think we've got these things wrong. And we really need to, and so I'm I'm here saying it's time to start effect, affecting our nation um, at the policy level. Again, I'm not here to make us look bad. We already, we, we, we've got that, we got that down. Um, I'm here to help clean us up and, and address these things once and for all. I totally 100% am hopeful and have hope, have never lost hope that things can change. But we've got to change the culture. And so my hope is that, you know, putting this copy um, in all of these politicians' hands, that they can start realizing, okay, Tara's not trying to make us look bad. I need, I, I'm much on this part of this team. Um, I told the T-Star general at Fort Riley a couple of weeks ago um, <laughs> when I, I asked him a question at a military affairs council breakfast, um, which I already knew the answer to, but I, <laughs> the thing that I asked him after I took a copy of the book um, to him, or I pinned some comp copies in that, or comments in it. And the night before I presented it to him, I showed it to my husband and he said, I might just get relieved tomorrow. And I said, I hope that's not the case. Um, but I, I was very blunt and direct with the, the commander at Fort Riley. Um, they've had three suicide deaths in the last month. Um, my husband told me today that yesterday they had a suicide stand down at Fort Riley, which is definitely a step in the right direction. But they, they, the Corps, which I think is five, makes up uh, five divisions. So the Corps has um, had experienced 25 deaths since January 1st. Okay. So I feel like what better time than now that this book comes out and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that they start asking me to be on the horn with them um, as to try to affect uh, positive change. I'm, I'm, I'm sick and tired of being looked at as the problem. The whistleblower is not the problem. Okay. And, and think about all these different systems, police systems, government systems. We all operate as part of many systems, but when somebody's highlighting problems, we need to stop getting rid of the person identifying the problem. It's, it's scary enough to, to step up and voice these things. We're not looking for attention. We're not attention seekers. I don't want this spotlight on me. This has nothing to do with Terrafields or that whistleblower. Okay, so if, if you're in any position of authority and somebody's bringing something to you, listen. Listen and, and stop dismissing them as somebody that just wants the media and news attention. And, and because guess what? I, I have no desire for any of that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not seeking attention for myself. I'm seeking attention for so many people that are voiceless, muzzled, and can't get help. That's, that's great. And I, I appreciate all your hard work, uh, both as a service member and especially what you're doing now to better the lives of other service members, Tara. I just want to open up this time for you to kind of um, speak to the listener, you know, tell them whatever you want them to hear, you know, whether it's regarding tracer patient um, or not. And, and I definitely want the listeners to know um, where they can find you, where they can find out more about your book and, and possibly even purchase it. Um, because as you said, I think this is a book that needs to be in a lot of people's hands. Absolutely. Thanks for the question. Um, so uh, first I'll just share, you can purchase Tracer patient um, online at 11,000 different retailers. So you think about any place that you can buy a book, you can get Tracer patient. Um, it, it was published through, um, uh, da, da, da. oh gosh, um, this is terrible. Um, 
Writers um, Republic. Uh, Writers Republic is who published it, and so um, you can you can purchase it certainly from their website as well. Um, it's in audio. It's not an audio book yet, but you can get it on for the Kindle. Um, and then the other thing I want to point listeners to um, is there is a GoFundMe page. There's a lot of information on the GoFundMe page, even if people can't um, provide any funds. Um, but there is a lot of information about Tracer Patient on the GoFundMe page. Um, and I, you know, this is a very expensive endeavor. Um, I funded it. I've, I do have some donors. Um, but yeah, if, if there's anybody out there that has funds that wants to provide, or even if you want to shoot me a, a message and uh, maybe you live in New Hampshire and you want to pay for the three books that go to the New Hampshire delegation, that's great. Um, I, you know, so there's not, there's no too little amount and there's no too big of amount. Um, I would just really um, welcome that. Um, and then uh, there's been people gracious um, to get on there and, and support that. So um, hopefully um, I do have some people that do listen to this and, and say, you know what, you know what, I can, I can provide, you know, a, you know, $25 for a book um, or, you know, put it toward whatever you want to do um, with this Tara. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but, and I guess, the, the thing that I really want to kind of convey to anybody listening to this is that um, whether you're a mom, you're a dad, um, you're a coach, whoever you are, um, people are looking at you, okay? People need something from you, but you can't provide anything to anybody until you've taken care of yourself. And uh, in the military, you know, we, it's all about the team and, and guests with mission and all these things. Um, but you have to still take care of yourself before you can take care of the mission. Um, and you know, if I, looking back on my hospitalization, that's exactly what I was getting wrong. I was so much, so much more worried about everybody else around me and finding the next person before they committed suicide that I really became, uh, vulnerable, um, and susceptible to getting myself close to the ledge myself just because my body was so merely burnt out and I wasn't doing the uh, bare basics to take care of myself, self-care. And so um, I just want to convey that to the listener is that regardless of who you are, or what your, what your job um, duties require you to do, you have to take care of yourself. That is, that's just a must. And so, um, yeah, I talk about that in the book and uh, it's not self, it's not selfish to do so and set instead it's vital. Um, so I, I guess if convey anything else, um, on this podcast is that take care of yourself because, you know, I often look around, you know, when I have patients sitting in front of me and I'll kind of peer around them and I'll say, well, I don't see a lot of people, you know, standing in line to take care of you. Okay. So, um, with that being said, we have to prioritize ourselves and sure, um, you know, there's better times than others, right. That, okay, maybe I need to. Uh, I need to just take a breather and, you know, go have a night to myself, which I did the other night. My husband took care of the kids, but I don't do that often enough. Okay. I can do that at a better time than another. Um, but you still have to take care of yourself. Um, and so when you're recognizing that you're burnt out, take that time to step away and, um, reevaluate, okay, where am I, what do I need? Um, and, and tend to that. Nobody else can do it. Like you're going to do it. So it's just a really important piece of tracer patient um is is that self-care aspect 
Yep. You have to pour into yourself to be able to pour into others. Absolutely. And, and Tara, we definitely appreciate you um, pouring into the podcast today and sharing with us your story and, um, you know, the tragic story of others so that we can become better Americans, better service members, better people. Um, so Tara, thank you so much for coming on the American Valor podcast. It has been an absolute blessing to have you here. And uh, we wish you the best of luck in your journey. Um, and we are here to stand by you and support you. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you so much, Blake and Nicolette. Thank you for taking the time and having me on. To our listeners, this concludes this episode of the American Valor Podcast. This conversation is brought to you by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, the Department of the Navy, Major League Baseball, USAA, BWXT, Huntington Ingalls, and the Cleveland Guardians. Please feel free to leave your comments in the comment section below and connect with the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. You can engage with the foundation at activevaloraward.org. There, you can learn more about Bob Feller, Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of the awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor podcast and more. For Blake Schmida, Leo Manchetti, and everyone at the American Valor podcast, thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. Oh,